Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I'm honored to have my friend and collaborator for many years, Michael Dupree. Michael wears so many hats, I call him Citizen Dupree. He literally is the chair of the Hyde Park Planning Board here in the Hudson Valley. He's the vice chair of the Dutchess County Democratic Committee, and he's also the chair of the board of, the, of SUNY, the State University of New York uh, Duchess campus, uh, Duchess Community College here. So Michael Dupree, first and foremost, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. And you and I both don't come from this place originally, right? You're a Texan and I'm from Ohio. How did you get here? Tell us a little bit about Michael Dupree's journey uh, to a place called the Hudson Valley. Michael Dupree moved to New York City uh, to write magazine articles, to edit, et cetera. And I met someone within a few months of moving here, uh, introduced to me by my college roommate who'd moved here a year beforehand, a uh, very close friend. And that turned out to be the person I started dating and then married. So uh, we've been together 32 years. My husband is actually from Long Island, not from this area either, but we were looking at maybe finding some place for the weekends, like many people would like to do, if you can afford it. Uh, he first took me to Long Island and the beaches and the Hamptons. And uh, there was a reason why I couldn't go there. It's called the LIE on the expressway. It was so dreadful and horrible and hideous. And it seemed as though all people wanted to talk about was, when do we have to leave in order to get back to the city at this time? And that just sounded more stressful than possible. In the meantime, your husband uh, had already been up here Mm -hmm. and said, why don't you come take a look up here? And that's really what drove it. As soon as I drove up the first time, saw your house now, uh, his house back then, and what the topography looks like, the beauty of the Hudson Valley, that was it. I was hooked mm -hmm. and convinced. Yes, and, and the history is there, particularly where you are in Hyde Park with the Roosevelt Library and Val Kill, Eleanor's poem, uh, the Kline Institute of America, and the list goes on and on. Um, well, but you moved in and it's not like you built a McMansion or you tried <laughs> to, to, you know, join the country club or whatever. You really put down roots in this community. Over the past few decades, you have just become so involved, so civic minded from the start. I've watched your career and it's been so admirable to me because you really care. And that's the whole point of the caring economy, right? Like, what do we value? What do we invest our time and energies in? How did, why don't you tell us a little bit about, I've listed some of your organizations from the Hyde Park Planning Board, the Dutchess County Democratic Committee, um, SUNY Dutchess. Where did you, what was the first committee you joined or the first organization in the community you got involved with? Do you remember that far back? I do. It was the uh, Hyde Park Democratic Committee, which is a subset of the county committee. But uh, that's because I switched my voter registration here and I got to know uh, this incredible little band of individuals. It's important here to point out that Franklin Roosevelt never carried his hometown, uh, not in any of his races for governor, state senator, for president. He never carried it. This was always a mixed community, but more Republican-y uh, rather than Democrat. So I joined the sort of group of stalwarts there to help elect someone that I thought uh, was really going to help the community move forward. Um, Hyde Park didn't really have zoning until the 70s, so it had subdivision approval. And so as, as the estates that you referred to earlier, the Roosevelt Estate, um, the Rogers Estate, which was in the middle of town, Krumwald, and then uh, the Vanderbilt Estate, the Frederick, 
variable, W variable estate. When income taxes were introduced, those families sold off big portions of their properties and they were developed basically uh, for such things as service stations, you know, restaurants, stuff like that. But there was never any sort of planning for the intent of it. So I first uh, met someone named Pompey Delafield who was running to become supervisor, who'd been on the planning board. I'd already watched him in action. And he's an architect, a planner. And I thought, that's who we need leading the community. So I, I volunteered there to help him. And then a neighbor down the street had seen me working out on our property, rebuilding stone walls. And she came down and said, uh, you need to join the Visual Environment Committee. And I went, okay, why? She said, because they advocate for a better community, better town, stronger zoning. And also they have a committee that rebuilds the stone walls that line uh, most of our public roadways. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure. And that's the very first one that I really volunteered for. And I wound up... Uh, being various officer positions there for nine years. But probably more importantly, uh, I wasn't on it for maybe six months. And then Pompey said, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, but Visual Environment, because he had been on the board before, and Scenic Hudson and the Hyde Park School District have all agreed that we're going to be rebuilding the stone walls in front of our drive-in. And since you're the chair of the stone wall committee now, I said, I am? I said, well, by the way, who's on it? He said, uh, you, so far. But at any rate, I wound up rebuilding the stone walls with Andy Bicking of Scenic Hudson, uh, members of our uh, the Honor Society at, high, at FTR High School, our high school. We also had volunteers from the community different times. We had uh, students from West Point, which was a lot of fun, but a little different for you know the camaraderie we've been building uh, every weekend because everything they do is, sir, yes, sir, sir, yes, sir. And we'd say, you can relax. No, sir, it's good practice, sir. At any rate, you meet a lot of people over three summers. And I, by that point, discovered that Hyde Park was filled with lots of fun, curious, interesting uh, types that you wouldn't necessarily think would be in a small town like this. Maybe that's the proximity to New York City. And how I'm sure along the way with, with that particular project, but any of your projects through these years, because I've seen how Hyde Park has evolved into a more, even more beautiful place year over year. And I give you a lot of credit for that. Um, you had obstacles. How have you, in this unpaid role in these civic organizations, how have you won people over who might have contrary views to your own? Not necessarily even political, but just views on development or other things. Patience. Mm -hmm. Literally patience. Um, you don't give up. You, part of, whenever you're dealing with land use decisions, there's a lot of uh, sometimes anger that gets brought into it. You know, this is my property. You can't be telling me what to do with it. At the same time, you have stakeholders such as the residents, particularly those neighbors that live nearby. You have municipal officials, county officials, et cetera, who have maybe a different viewpoint. And so there's really, it used to be, I should say, maybe not so much anymore, that a lot of the job of being chair of the board was really conflict resolution. And one obstacle that, I learned one way to solve those obstacles was to get the people in the room, the project sponsors or the applicant, the developer, if you want to use that term, um, you know, their attorneys, their engineers, whatever, uh, members of some, some group say that might be opposing it. And then uh, a couple of planning board members, our consultants, and then to talk through the issues and see if you can come to, I'll, I'll still use the term compromise, but compromise implies that both sides are giving up things. I like to look at it as, you no, know, we're trying to get to a place where everyone is happy. So, uh, and I actually took a course through Pace Law School. They have something called the Land Use Leadership Alliance. 
mm-hmm. and Lula. And they actually teach courses for people who are in making land use decisions uh, on things like conflict resolution. And they give you cases of, you know, you're in the city, town A, you're in city B, this has happened, these are the conflicts, how do you resolve it? And you work through with other you know, students in the class at the time. And if you are lucky enough to take those, then I think it definitely gives you a big path forward. Then on the other hand, the, that's just sort of the planning work, but the more sort of impo- important, maybe improvements to our aesthetics of our town, the visual environment committee, not only does it uh, rebuild stone walls, but it also does, we plant, uh, pocket gardens around town in public areas. We maintain them. There's a lot that goes on with that organization that uh, helps identify people who want to support the town moving forward with a particular vision. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate when I got involved with that group because it had waxed and waned several times. It was initially formed uh, to oppose, believe it or not, the sale of Valkyll. Uh, the heirs to uh, Franklin and Eleanor were just in selling it for it to become uh, basically apartment buildings. And this group formed to uh, basically appeal to the National Park Service and the heirs to say, how about giving it to the National Park Service or selling it so it can be, you know, become an historic treasure. And they did fundraising. They had um, Jean, I'm forgetting her name, but she was the actress who played the wife and all in the family. She played Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, Jean. That's it. She came to do events here uh, to help raise funds. There was a documentary that was shown on Channel 13 that was financed by the Visual Environment Committee group that talked about development and the pressures here, mm-hmm. pressures on historic sites. Because you're right, Hyde Park has a wealth of natural and historical resources that deserve you know, some attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at any rate, if I ever really had a lot of obstacles, I could always contact people in this group, a lot of them, are now passed away because the group started in 1968. Mm-hmm. But these were still people who, you know, they were born and raised here and they really cared about the town. They had a great passion for their community. Mm-hmm. And the idea that someone would say, no, we just have to let any business in, that was sort of anathema to them. It's we want all businesses, but we want them to be appropriately designed. We want them to help create a sense of place here in Hyde Park. So mm-hmm. in other words, I had friends along the way and I had the patience of Joe Papadon. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the the business community because the whole uh, point of the caring economy is to talk about the role of business in society. How how do you do you recognize certain businesses that just have it in their DNA to be more involved and more responsible toward the community, or or does it is it sort of scattershot when you go out on a particular project? You have a strategic approach to who you bring into your efforts. How's how do you target the businesses you work with? Planning board itself does not develop. Um, we don't go out and seek development. The town had an economic development committee that I chaired um, before I joined the planning board. And one thing I learned there, and we worked with our chamber of commerce members. We worked with several uh, larger developers, members of the development community and property owners. Uh, one thing we discovered is that we would contact, say, if citizens would say, you know, I really want to have a target here. We contacted Target. We discovered that uh, you need to have a minimum, and this was 17, 18 years ago, in a minimum of 30,000 people, which Hyde Park does not have. We hold steady at about 22,000. They will not erect a location that's within a 20 minute, I believe, drive from a current location, which there's a target in the city of Poughkeepsie that's about 20 minutes away. So by gathering that information, uh, we first learned sort of what the township wanted. 
and they really wanted more restaurants, more grocery stores, uh, more cafes, you know, theater, maybe. Uh, our town is limited by the fact that we're the largest town in the county without commercial wastewater. We have no central sewer. Mm -hmm. So we're all in septic. So getting more restaurants is always more problematic because it's a wet use, et cetera. In terms of the planning board, when we have businesses that want to propose, you know, coming here, um, the first thing we do is have what I call an offline meeting or pre-application meeting. And there it's my job or my role, at least to me, to we talk about what they're proposing, maybe get on to architecture or something else, the basic layout. Um, then I discuss any you know, bumps in the road ahead or tell them what to expect. So if it's say a really large application then I will tell them because most of our commercial properties are on state highways, routes nine or nine G, they'll probably need to do a traffic impact study. Department of Transportation will require that. So um, my role is really to try to hasten the process, you know, reduce delays in the reviews by being as frank and candid as possible. Um, we have the nation's first Actually, not the nations, the East Coast's first sake brewery underway here in a former, uh, you know, large grocery store. Mm -hmm. And the very first time I met them, I said, okay, here's what to expect. And that had been worked on by then Governor, Governor Cuomo, been worked on by our uh, deputy county executive in charge of economic development, and the Culinary Institute of America had all kind of partnered to try to get this here. The culinary wants to expand its uh, Japanese cuisines, culinary offerings, so yeah, that you would have a tourist destination because of tasting room here to work out, et cetera. But anyway, when they're all talking about this, they're talking usually about tax breaks and land availability. They don't get into the details or the interstices of what the planning process is. And with Japanese owners, they had no idea, but they hired some really great firms uh, so who were familiar with the process. But anyway, that's my role is, is to make sure that, again, any road bumps, if I, you know, we don't have septic. Well, I've heard that there's gonna be water problems there, chemical problems. We should address that first. It's just trying to make it more business friendly by telling people outs at the outset what to expect. Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, let's maybe use that sake uh, distillery as an example, or we can use another one for our listeners to describe the role of the political folks in all of this, because you're also masterfully involved with, <laughs> particularly through your work with the, uh, the Dutch County Democratic Committee. But I don't know anyone in New York State who knows more political officials on a first name basis than you, except for me. Oh, there, I'm sure there are plenty. I'm sure there are plenty. Um, so the political role is that um, you have a series of elected officials who are all behind this and they're of different parties. And as I will tell anyone, including your listeners, um, when it comes to campaign season, I will look for Republican officers you know, in the eye and say, okay, I'm going to be trying to defeat you for the next four months. But if you win, we'll be friends the day of the election all over again. <laughs> and you have to be that way because you have to work together to accomplish things. And I'm fortunate that in this area, we all pretty much get along until, you know, as they call it up here, the silly season. So August, September, October, and then November hits, and you're all back to being friends, depending on how it all you know sorts out. In the case of the sake distillery, as I said, there was there was tremendous effort from the state, you know, elected officials as well as county, and that was Democrats and Republicans. A lot the county is run by Republicans, the state by Democrats, as you know. And then by the time it filtered down here, it was just more a way of saying, can we all get along? Can we all be on the same page? And for me, anybody who wants to take credit for anything, take it. I don't care. It's, as long as it's going to happen, take it. So 
we had many elected officials walking away going, yay, yay, this is happening. And that's what you try to do as well as make them happy because again, they, they can help start the levers in this process. I'm reminded of that old saying that success uh, has many parents and failure is an orphan. But if it's all yes. in the right direction, it's all good. Um, ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, I'm thrilled to have Michael Dupree, or I fondly call him Citizen Dupree. Michael has been involved in so many great civic organizations for decades now in New York. He's the chair of the Hyde Park Planning Board. He's vice chair of the Dutchess County Democratic Committee. He's chair of the State University of New York Dutchess County campus for Dutchess County. Um, Michael, let's talk a little bit about education. You didn't just fall into this board role at SUNY, which is one of the, I think, along with California, is probably two of the greatest state systems for higher education. And I agree. Um, so, and also is so critical to the success of any community, any, any um, democracy, really. H how did you get involved with SUNY? First, I have a political friend who was the uh, head of the county legislature for 26 years. I had, let me rephrase that, minority leader. She was a Democrat. Her husband uh, had been the Democratic mayor of the city of Poughkeepsie. And so she's sort of a doyen of democratic politics, to put it mildly. But she's also a hoot and very fun. And she was on the board of trustees and kept saying, why don't you join us? Why don't you join us? So I started going to the Community College Foundation galas. I started learning more about what the course offerings there were. And then once I discovered that it was part of SUNY, I'm going to be pause here for a moment to be not snobbish, but just to sort of reveal that in my day, the community colleges that we had, say, in Austin, Texas, where I did my undergraduate work at the University of Texas, it was a former high school, and it didn't really offer much. As soon as I saw the campus for SUNY Dutchess, I was shocked. And in my head, I thought, this is like a real campus. Well, they're all real campuses. But this is, you know, a full, this is a perch top of a hill. It's got magnificent views of the countryside, the rolling countryside around it. And it really does feel like a four-year campus when you're on it. Um, and then... Once I was asked again to be appointed, I was appointed by the governor. Um, there are two types of trustees, or not types. Trustees are appointed both by the county legislature as well as the governor. Um, there are five from the county, four from the governor, and then we have a 10th uh, who's a student trustee, and that's who the students elect, which is really also unique to my experience because when I was an undergraduate, the Board of Regents, the trustees who ran University of Texas were all you know, big business people appointed by the governor and we never saw them or met them. Um, to have a student trustee interact with you and have that ability to ask him or her, you know, what are you hearing on campus about this, this policy, this new program, this whatever, it's wonderful um, because you, that, that feedback, you, you can't get it to every student. I spend a lot of time on campus or did before COVID I'm talking to people, having lunches with student leaders. Um, that's another thing that we kind of instituted was twice a year dinner with the trustees and the student leadership, because again, mm -hmm. that dialogue back and forth helps. So at any rate, it was really serendipitous, you might as well say. But at the same time, I've always believed that education is the way into the middle class. Once you're in the middle class, the way to achieve higher, if that's your goal. Um, but education is something that's needed for everyone to become indeed a good citizen. And that's mm -hmm. the truth. Absolutely. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you've experienced either at Duchess or in general around um, the issues of the past year and a half from COVID, Black Lives Matter, social um, justice or income disparities? I, one of the things I love about the community colleges 
as well as the historically black colleges and universities is they are a, uh, a conveyor belt or a escalator, a means for social mobility. Um, so I wonder what's happening on the campuses these days, at least virtually. Well, so first we are going back to in-person teaching for most courses. Um, we did throughout COVID, uh, there were certain courses that were still taught on campus, very few, but they were um, things like chemistry labs, um, performing arts, music, uh, television. Those are all in studios or labs where we could easily distance. But your regular traditional classroom, we went um, either synchronous or asynchronous, but online. Mm -hmm. um, that gave us a tremendous amount of data. So for example, uh, professors, teachers, instructors, when they are say asynchronous, they know from what's called the dashboard system that we use, they know when students are logging on. One of the things we learned is that like, uh, there were a couple of students from different classes who would long, log on every night to watch this and participate at 1 a.m., another at 4 a.m., mm. another one at 6 a.m. There were more than just one of these. But at any rate, that told us that these students could not take classes traditionally if they were offered on campus in person. So we're, we will have a hybrid system now going forward. And there was a question raised by a friend of mine, well, why weren't they already offered online? It's because that transition is not always easy. Mm. Teaching in person is very different than teaching online, particularly asynchronous, um, you know, where people can just call it up anytime they want and maybe take you know, three classes in a row. Uh, or three sessions in a row. So there had to be training for that. And we got our, the teachers who were already teaching online, we were very fortunate that our instructional staff said, look, we'll be the peers and kind of be leaders. And so they broke up into teams based on the pedagogy that they were in to help one another. And it worked out very nicely. So what we'll go back to in person for the time being, assuming that nothing uh, worsens, uh, but we are keeping some of the other presence. In terms of Black Lives Matter, Diversity, equity, and inclusion has certainly been a goal, uh, part of our mission statement at DCC for a long, long time. You're a resident of this county, so you know that there are pockets where um, more persons of color reside, and the biggest pocket in our county is the city of Poughkeepsie. Mm -hmm. We are in the town of Poughkeepsie, which is just sort of a, wraps around like a horseshoe around the city. But a lot of our students uh, come from the city of Poughkeepsie, and many of them are persons of color. Um, and so there is always there's been a tradition of making outreach to those students, as well as to make sure that you have uh, an administration and a staff, you know, instructional staff, that looks like your students too, because we all know from studies that a lot of people respond better if it's someone who looks like them, and it's more inspiring, et cetera. So um, we just uh, hired our latest president, the seventh president of the college since its founding uh, 63, 64, 63 years ago. And he's a man of color, uh, Dr. Peter Jordan. Uh, this would be our first person of color to lead the institution, and he succeeds the first female president of the institution. So, all those things have you know been sort of pushed forward by people who sat in the same seat that I did before me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just important that we continue that legacy. Um, we we also let me describe real quickly. About forty percent of our students actually come to campus because we are the lowest cost community college in the SUNY system. We have the lowest tuition in the state. Uh, so we get, say, the salutatorian and valedictorian from Millbrook High School. We get you know, top performers from any number of schools in the district mm -hmm. because they're going to transfer, say, to Marist, SUNY New Paltz, SUNY Albany, 
Believe it or not, we every two years, or every graduation, I should say, have at least six people who are transferring to Vassar because it's so much cheaper to come here than it is to Vassar. And Vassar is, you know, needs blind. They offer lots of scholarships, but it's still more expensive. Then I have another 40 to 45% who are there to get technical degrees, certificates, uh, associate's degrees. Um, they may be coming back uh, or coming in for what are now called credentials and micro-credentials, which is basically just saying they can do what they need to do. Um, so that's sort of a broad offering. And that's where we tend to get a lot of our more needs-based individuals. And the rest of the other 10% or 20%, depending, that cohort are students older than average. Say you've been working as a nurse for 10 years, you come back, if you take five more courses, then you can get your master's and then you go to another rank, you know, at your job. Mm -hmm. um, there's a number of that. There's also veterans that come back needing education. Um, that's also includes people who did not get their high school education. So our GED classes and the also the English as a second language classes, the ESL. Those are all kind of lumped in there because those are also services that we need to provide. The ESL classes, uh, those are typically taught in the city of Poughkeepsie at the uh, community partnership building, but we also have various satellites around the county where we offer those uh, up as well. It just makes me feel all the more as you describe all those offerings, Michael, about how important the community colleges and uh, the, the less celebrated, frankly, colleges and universities in, of our 3,200 in this nation, how critical they are to the stability of our democracy and that social mobility. I'd love to ask you another question on the DEI uh, topic, which is as a gay man, we both have been out for a very long time and friends for decades. Um, how are things? Do you feel that uh, you that we've advanced? Do you feel that you're discriminated against less, more, the same? Um, the battle's never done, but social justice is a, a, an ongoing movement, I think. But um, what say you? Well, I first want to give credit to all the generations before us. To me, you know, the fight for civil rights really goes back to women trying to stand up for their own rights. And yes, at the time that was for white women only, but once you start, you know, trying to say we're all equal, then you see that expand and expand and expand. Mm -hmm. you know, when I first told my parents I was gay at 17, and this is in, you know, Louisiana, just moved there uh, four years before from Texas, that was not the done thing to do. I mean, I, I read now and I see, I know younger gay people, young gay people, I'll say, who take their male or female, their same sex dates to the prom. And I think, wow, that is progress. That was not possible. I would have been killed, not just beaten up, I'd have been killed. So yes, there is huge progress. At the same time, you know, I remember when I was a kid growing up in the South, we definitely believed in civil rights that, that you know, the Negro, as we called them back then, that label uh, or colored person, they were our equals. That, but we were taught not to think of them as different, that we were all the same. The evolution now is, is that you need to understand that there's a black experience that's lived that you probably can never live being a white person. So and I think that's what frustrates a lot of people. They're like, but wait, I don't treat you any differently. Why should, why, why do you want to be treated differently? It's because your skin color People see it, they notice, and it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So I think there's been progress in lots of areas. I'd say overall, we all live better now than we did back then. There's more equality of opportunity. Um, there are more women that I work with than ever before, which believe that's one of my big causes is 
the equality of, you know, the opposite sex of us. So I think that's great. At the same time, I know that there are people in our community, Toby, um, you know, other gay men, maybe gay women, but who object to going, well, why are we worried about the trans transgender? That's not us. That's not me. Like, mm -hmm. no, it's not you, but you're, you're being judged by the basis of sexual identity, sexual interests, who you want to love, who you want to know, be with the rest of your life. So to me, it's all inclusive and embracing. We should be marching forward together, all of us together, you know, Latinos, Latinx, uh, Blacks, all of us, because that's, that's the more perfect union as they always say that we're trying to form. Yep. So I think there's been progress, but at the same time, it's causing frustration. Uh, there, there's more racism, I think, in many ways. Um, yes, it was there, silently dog whistled, but now the fact that people don't seem to be ashamed of making some statements, particularly on social media. I just was shown some posts this morning that I literally, my jaw dropped. I couldn't, and this is a candidate running for office in, another, in a neighboring town. I thought, did the, did the voters see this? I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, yes. Yeah, I, um, I do think that there is greater transparency in society in general, and that's a good thing. Um, but it is also giving platforms to some ugly demonstrations and protests. Um, but like you, I have faith that we are moving in the right direction and that it is, it's a better community or better world, but it's not something we can assume or take for granted. We have to keep on doing what we're doing. And that's why I've loved having you in my life, but also having you here today on the show, Michael, because you, you are Citizen Dupree. You make our communities better and you do it... <laughs> You don't take a dime from anyone. It's all volunteer for you. It's, it's all volunteer, but it's all, you know, I will credit, it's funny because I don't always credit much else of my Catholic upbringing, but, you know, I grew up going to Catholic school and with very much Catholic values, which back then were certainly, and this was instilled for me on a daily basis, which was helping those less fortunate, helping others. Mm -hmm. um, and less fortunate doesn't mean just, you know, really abjectly poor people. It means anyone who has any kind of privation, whether that be mental, housing, you know, issues, food, whatever. We're all, to me, we're in this together. And, you know, that's why it's so great knowing people like you, because I know you believe that too. If we all just put up our fences and silos and say, nope, I'm getting my own. I don't, you have to come, you know, pull me out and kill me to get what I have. That's not really very productive for society. Yeah, and I think we do have, we're fortunate, right? When I mean, we've had our hard knocks, but I think that um, you can call it privilege, you can tell, you can call it whiteness, you can call it whatever, but I do believe that we need to be more catalytic now. So it's not even a matter of judging or not judging, it's about doing. And so I try both with my, my own life, but with my colleagues at work, I try to infuse this, this exercise or this, this, um, this practice or routine that says, how can we take X, whatever we're working on and make it more inclusive and more progressive? Because most people, I don't think realize how lucky they are, particularly in this country, to have the wealth of resources, the access to education, water coming out of the taps. And people, quite frankly, like you, who are actually behind the scenes for, well, though very much available in a transparent, accountable governance way, um, doing the work that they just take for granted, you know, that, you know, uh, an ugly building is not going to be put up in my neighborhood or a polluter is not going to go um, down the street from me. It doesn't just happen. So I think if we can all start to see ourselves as catalysts 
and take any exercise, any event, any gathering and make it more inclusive, more progressive, that that's the kind of way forward for everyone to have a critical role. I agree 100% with you. If you can be inclusive, if you can be inclusive of people who do not share these days a political value system with, you can still keep a dialogue, you're achieving something. Yep. As I've said over the years, when I was little, we'd ask my parents, my sister and I, you know, what should we be? What do you want us to be? And they're like, happy. We'd be, That's not an answer. <laughs> but actually it turned out to be because what they really meant was find what you want to do that'll make you the happiest. And, you know, in my case, I did one thing for many years, uh, but then gradually used a bunch of skill sets that I developed over the years to become, I think, a better, like a, a good volunteer for a community. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, having been a writer, editor, but also having been uh, in the financial world, uh, working for two Schroffs back then, one of the big back then accounting firms, understanding how to read, you know, business plan, how to formulate one. Those are also very helpful for nonprofits um, when you're applying for grants. You know, it's a very stringent process. Mm -hmm. You have to have deliverables. Um, same thing with the town. When we get grants from the federal government or the state, you know, it's not just a, hi, we want this. It's a long application form. You must have all sorts of things in it. It's very repetitive, but more importantly, the deliverables, once you, you know, say we, we, we went out for bid, we got these, everything that goes into it is really cumbersome, as it should be, by the way. It's government funds you're using. I mean, it's taxpayer dollars. But it's just, that's, that's where it takes real effort behind the scenes because it's easy for someone to ideate, as I call it. Hey, why don't you, drive, why don't you do this? Okay, can you help? Can you own it? Because that's what you mean by being catalytic. That, that's saying, yes, I'm going to work toward this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you find people go, no, 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 I, I can't get involved. I'm, I'm too busy with my own life. But often if you say to people, you know, I love that idea. I'm willing to work with you on it. Can we work together? And I have a group that may even be more helpful. You get results that way. You're here. Well said, Michael Dupree. Ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you to our guest today on The Caring Economy, Michael Dupree, who is, again, Citizen Dupree to me, the chair of the High <laughs> Planning Board here in the Hudson Valley, vice chair of the Dutchess County Democratic Committee, chairman of the board of the State University of New York's Dutchess campus, and many, many, many other great organizations. Thank you, Michael Dupree. Thank you, Toby.